watching one night a documentary and they were interviewing people who'd been mauled by white pointer sharks. Now, again, they were not making this point. I just had my psychologist glasses on. But all of the people interviewed fell into two groups. Group one, they're swimming along, they look down, they see a shark, it's got big teeth, it bites their leg off. All of those people described incredible pain, physical pain. The other group, the shark snuck up on them and bit their leg off. None of those people described pain. They said, I felt a bump or a thump. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Welcome to the next episode of the Good Life podcast. One of the things that we've often done on The Good Life is to speak to amateurs, and it struck me that it might be time to speak to a professional. Uh, Randolph Sparks is a clinical psychologist in Canberra. Uh, He's passionate about mental health and learning, uh, and he works particularly in the area of pain and injury management. Uh, Randolph, somebody who engages with uh, academic literature, Uh, teaching students both at the University of Canberra and at the Australian National University. Uh, For his experiences at the coalface and in the the broader literature, it's a real pleasure to have him here today joining us on the Good Life podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Randolph, you came to psychology not directly but via a somewhat more circuitous route. Is that right? I understand you're a bike mechanic. I was indeed, 15 years a bicycle mechanic, um, interspersed with uh, touring around on my bicycle, around Australia and uh, anywhere else I could get to. Um, And uh, the change came when I uh, had a child. Um, What what, what was your favourite part of Australia to to cycle? um, Up the east coast, I would have to say from roundabout Sydney, I think, up to Cape Tribulation once, as far as Darwin once, well, that's veering away from the East Coast. Uh, But, yeah, across that great dividing range over and over again. (laughs) And travelling solo for the most part? Sometimes solo and sometimes with a partner. So you must be quite comfortable in your own, being on your own then? Yes, I think so. And did you then go back to retrain in psychology? Had you studied psychology originally before you went into into bike mechanics? No, I dropped out of school at the end of year 11 to pursue my career as a bicycle mechanic with all its glory. Um, I had a child who's just turned 23 now. And uh, at that point, I figured I really needed to do something more substantial in terms of work and uh, I started on a journey of investigating what that might be. So I would get up at four in the morning, 
and watch Open Learning on the ABC, which mm. were in those days uh, university tutorials pretty much, just looking for something uh, that I found interesting enough to get me to complete my HSC and then embark on university. And psychology kind of tweaked that, which was great. So I had a purpose. Uh, went to TAFE on the south coast, uh, discovered I could read and write <laughs> and, and even speak, which was a surprise, um, and then took it from there. Do you think you're a better psychologist today from coming at the discipline late and, and from having done, uh, having had a substantive career doing something completely different? I, I'm not sure. Um, it is somewhat of a regret, I guess, that I didn't come to the discipline earlier because I love this work mm. and I, I derive a great deal of joy from working with people and talking to people and uh, figuring things out and figuring out uh, potential well, solutions or at least ways to better manage things. So if I were to do it again, I would hopefully at least com complete my high school this time. And coincidentally, my, my lovely daughter, Chloe, uh, she's just finished her first semester of her psychology degree. There you go. So okay. <laughs> it goes around, comes around. <laughs> and psychology is in some sense, or certainly at the clinical phase, about problem solving. What sort of methods do you use? Mm -hmm. um, I work with what is in the room. So I work with the person and I refer back to the models I've been trained in. But what is most important always is that other person in the room. And so I learned fairly early that I don't walk into sessions with an agenda because I know it's going to be derailed. And were I to rigidly hold on to my agenda, that might be at the expense of something someone has to tell me that's important. So I feel it is very important to stay present with the client I'm working with. Um, but again, we do constantly refer back to models of understanding mm. that we can then hopefully put that information into and that can lead us to reasonably uh, logical approaches and strategies. So there's, there's all of these sort of... Uh strategies within psychology, some of which are, I think are listed on your, uh, on your formal website. Just let me, let me fire a few of them at you and you can just tell our, our listener uh, what, they, what they mean in broad sense. What is cognitive behaviour therapy? Okay, so cognitive behaviour therapy is expanding a great deal. Um, it was fairly rigid back in the days of my training. Now it encompasses a lot more. So it's not as strict a, a kind of a label as it used to be. But in general terms, it's looking at uh, behaviours. So what are we doing that is unhelpful to us? Um, and it looks at the underlying cognitions and beliefs. So that means both at the level of our deeper beliefs, um, often unhelpful beliefs about ourselves, like I can't cope or no one will love me. They can be fairly deep ones. And also at the more surface level, so what people are constantly saying to themselves in their mm. internal dialogue. And often these are almost unnoticed when you keep repeating something to yourself. And it will have an impact, you know, if you go into every situation saying, I'm not going to cope with this, then 
you know, we can't be totally surprised if we don't cope so well. So CBT helps to identify different types of thinking and hopefully they relate to behaviours and activities. So quite often we start, uh, I usually start behaviourally rather than cognitively mm -hmm. um, and that means we've got to do things. Yeah. Um, so quite often when people are struggling, they're withdrawing and they're, they're either reducing or ceasing to engage in things that, that provide meaning and enjoyment and accomplishment. Mm. And we need those. Acceptance and commitment therapy? Okay, acceptance and commitment therapy uh, is a, what's called a third wave behaviour therapy. It uh, takes less of a, a direct approach on identifying particular thoughts and trying to change them as CBT would. So CBT would advise us that if we keep saying, I can't cope, that we might have something better we could say. Mm. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy takes a slightly different approach, and that is to diffuse from these types of thinking. So rather than change them, we try and change... Uh, our relationship to them or find ways of just not listening to them as mm. much mm. and staying committed to our course of action. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's a difference between the two is the CBT attempts to get in there, find those unhelpful thoughts and change them to helpful thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, ACT or, or similar ones um, tend to say, yeah, just let it talk and do what you want to do anyway. Right. And, and to kind of stop feeding them yes. rather than change them. Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah. That's an interesting distinction. Uh, preventing relapse of depression? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, unfortunately, many people who have experienced depression uh, tend to experience relapses in that depression. Uh, there, are, there are a number of approaches we can use. Uh, the one that I particularly like is what's called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and that's uh, using mindfulness techniques, including what I've just described as a component of ACT. Um, and again, changing those relationships so that the theory goes that often relapse occurs due to normal low mood. So when we're just even waking up on the wrong side of the bed, you know, we feel terrible. We, saying, we think to ourselves, oh, this is depression. This mm. is what that felt like. And then the risk is we start believing that, re-engaging in the unhelpful behaviours such as withdrawing from our friends and, and uh, other valued activities, um, recurrence of those negative thoughts that we may have had under control there for a while, um, and thereby relapsing into depression. That's one model. Another model I'm increasingly using and spruiking um, is an adaptation of uh, a new branch of psychology, relatively new, uh, positive psychology. Um, and that was in the year 2000, I think, um, a group of psychologists, uh, including Martin Seligman, um, thought, what's right with people? Which is a revelation to us. Look, it's, it, <laughs> it's not as if we'd never asked, but as a formal discipline, yes. we hadn't been terribly good at asking what's right with people. And so uh, they've done a lot of work uh, originally using the term authentic happiness. Um, now they find the term happiness a little bit loaded. Uh, so Seligman prefers flourishing, which just means living a good life mm. and looking at what components are there. And so I, I believe this model gives us... Uh, a lot of really helpful ways 
um, to prevent relapse of depression by living a good life and by being aware of what those components are that help us live a good life. So what do you regard as the, the key components of, of living a good life? I, I know you mm-hmm. read, read one piece where you talked about this acronym of PERMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, uh, is, is, that how, is, is, is that a nutty way of encapsulating your view of a good life? Yes, look, we psychologists, we love acronyms, <laughs> and that is one. Um, in the MBCT, the, the Relapse Prevention Model, uh, two things we're very well aware of are the needs for a sense of pleasure and a sense of accomplishment. Um, they are also within the positive psychology model. Mm. So if I could indulge us for a moment, I can go through Excellent. PERMA. Love it. Uh, so PERMA is the, the five elements that... Um, and again, the reason I use this for relapse prevention, I'll describe in a moment. They, Martin Seligman arrived at this checklist, if you like, of things we want to do to give a good life by asking people who uh, were reporting themselves as flourishing. So he asked, well, what does that mean? What are you experiencing? Mm. And, uh, and that's where this list came up. Now, the reason I use it for relapse prevention for depression is because one day I was looking at this list, probably describing it to someone, and I realised that it is that, that same list could have been achieved another way. It's pretty much the opposite to the criteria for depression. Okay. So if we were, were to reverse each of these components, we would have depression. So I thought it's a, what a you know, handy model. <laughs> so just for our listener, PERMA, positive okay. emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning accomplishment? Correct. Uh, so positive uh, emotions doesn't mean hedonism. It doesn't mean if it feels good, do it. There could be negative consequences. Uh, but it means allowing yourself to feel pleasure. It means engaging in activities that give you a good chance of experiencing pleasure. And there are a bunch of techniques in there that we can use, um, such as, you know, the number one um, predictor of pleasure is to share with another. Mm. Um, And that can mean doing something with people or even recounting uh, an event with someone. Um, We can use things like uh, mental snapshots, um, which I used to use when I, I rode my mountain bike a lot. I would get to the top of, say, Mount Ainsley. I'd stand there and take a mental snapshot Mm. and say, this was worth it. Look at this. And then when I didn't want to get on my bike the next time, I could remember that mental snapshot and that would encourage me to get up there and have that kind of fun riding up steep hills. Um, So many ways we can increase our ability to experience pleasure, but mainly, you know, the willingness to go there. And Mm. again, if we look at depression, uh, then depression is characterised by uh, negative self-appraisals, basically d- negative appraisals of the self, of others, of the world, and of the future. Um, and so we want to kind of hopefully reverse those mm. in treatment, but at the same time live a life where we've got plenty of evidence coming in that, that these are at least reasonable things, if not good and fun. 
I remember reading one study which suggested you should book your holiday a long way in advance because the pleasure people seem to enjoy from a the anticipation of a holiday was nearly as great as the pleasure of the holiday itself. I, I think I'd agree with that. Um, there's no way to get through the, the last two weeks of that anticipation when you just <laughs> don't want to be at work, but <laughs> that's going to happen either way. Mm. Do you want to talk through some of the other aspects of, sure. of PERMA? Sorry, I sure. interrupted you there. Um, the really good thing about the model of PERMA is that each of these aspects tends to activate a bunch of the other aspects as mm. well. So the next one is engagement. Now, what engagement means in this model is actually something really specific, um, and that's called well, technically autotelic experience, but it means the flow state. And what that means is when we're engaging in an activity that requires some level of skill, we have the skill and we're enjoying the activity. And then what happens is we, we tend to shift in our experience and our perception and we start getting instant feedback from what we're doing. Or in another way, time and space kind of disappear when we're doing that thing. Mm. So it might be playing a musical instrument, it might be um, running, it might be um, any number of things, really. Just that as long as there's a level of skill involved um, and that potential for enjoyment with it. And so people who are reporting that they are flourishing are reporting that they are, re that they are um, often going into a flow state. Mm, mm. And so what that means also is we want to do things and we, and we can, there's value in taking up novel um, skills, novel activities, new things, and developing those skills up. And then we get that wonderful feeling when we finally hit that, that flow state. Mm, mm. Um, I remember watching a tennis match, I think, between Federer and Djokovic, and the, the commentators were saying, no, no, Djokovic is in the zone. You know, Federer has to do something wacky to kind of break him out. And you could see he was just having fun and in the moment, and that's the flow state. Yes, yes. Relationships? Relationships, yeah. Relationships actually means, well, a, a sense of connection with others. Um, so it doesn't mean we have to have extensive friendship networks as such, but we need to regularly interact with and feel a connection to other people. Again, when we're depressed, um, often that's missing. There's a sense of disconnect, um, even with our loved ones at times. Um, and I should backtrack to pleasure also, is that um, a symptom of depression is what's called anhedonia, and that is the inability to experience pleasure. Mm. So when we're depressed, we may do something we've always enjoyed but just not feel it, and that's that lack of pleasure. So the flow state is one of those ways where we, we kind of enhance the pleasure and the enjoyment. So, um, yeah, my recommendation is, you know, do things uh, that require uh, some level of skill. doesn't have to be much. Um, and keep doing them. And uh, hopefully we reach that stage. We also find in general terms the evidence tends to suggest with physical exercise, uh, if we enjoy it, uh, we're likely to get healthy and fit. If we hate it, uh, we're likely to get uh, exhausted and probably injure ourselves because mm, mm. we're not paying attention. We're thinking about how much we hate this. <laughs> On the relationship front, are there, is there advice that you give to patients about how to manage social media? Because presumably the uh, pleasure brought to us by a Facebook friend isn't always as great as that brought by a face-to-face -face friend. Uh, 
It's a really tricky one, isn't it? It's a vexed issue because social media does provide such wonderful opportunities but does seem to be a, a, a vehicle for, um, well, bullying um, and for invalidation. Um, I tend to suggest to people, and this is my personal approach with my partner as well, is we might read something interesting, we don't read the comments mm. um, because in general there's not a lot to be gained by reading the comments to something um, but you are more likely to uh, see all of the unpleasantness. Um, so that's one approach is just limit how far you're going to go with these things. There's something strangely negatively addictive about reading hundreds of mm. negative comments on something. So we can just not do that. Um, similarly, back in the days of um, paper newspapers, uh, I remember with a couple of clients getting them to highlight the TV shows they wanted to watch and switch the TV off at other times yes. so that they just didn't drift into you know, input that was negative for them. And, and is there a risk of addictiveness on some of these technolo- technologies? Have you, got, have you developed clever strategies for limiting our natural tendency to check email a bit too often? <laughs> um, look, I have to admit, I haven't probably focused a lot on, on social media and, mm. and those uh, aspects. Um, I think with almost anything, insight is key, and, and that is the ability to be able to observe ourselves. And so we will know in ourselves when we're heading down those paths. Um, and you know, the trick is to be able to catch yourself and shift your behavior uh, when you need to. Mm. Um, we, we are beginning to understand. Uh, we've often wondered why... Even if we think about something like negative thinking or recounting negative events, often there's something strangely familiar and comfortable about those negative thinking processes. Like, you know, I've got to drive to Sydney, three and a half hours. I'll just go back through, you know, all the people who've wronged me through my life. And it's, it's almost negative thinking for entertainment. Um, I do recommend people find other things to entertain themselves with. Mm. Um, but we believe it's this is a neurological issue, um, getting too technical. Um, but what we're doing is activating very well-worn neural patterns. Yes. And that is why they feel this way. So the challenge is to catch ourselves in the neural pattern, adaptively remove ourselves, and then focus our attention where we want it to be. Um, now, I mentioned a technique diffusion involved in acceptance and commitment therapy, and a, a version of that um, is I, I use a, a recommend a three-step kind of process, and that is to be aware of your own vulnerabilities, uh, what you might think negatively about, what you may engage in negatively. Catch yourself doing these things. Take a couple of breaths um, to down-regulate amygdala activity or to down-regulate the danger response or the urge to act immediately. Um, and emotions are what help us act immediately. The two strongest ones are fear and anger. So we'd like to modulate those a little bit. 
They're not that often going to help us in daily life. And then to deliberately move our attention initially to whatever it is we're doing. And so, again, when we are depressed or we're anxious, often we are in our heads. We're catastrophizing, and that means worrying. We're ruminating. That means thinking in circles about negative events. And, again, these distract us from what we're actually doing at the time, which is where the value is. Mm. So the sense of pleasure, the sense of accomplishment, we need to fire up those neural patterns That has to be done in the present moment. And when we worry about things, that's future thinking. When we think back to negative events and ruminate, that's past. And so we spend a lot of our time leapfrogging past future, missing the present, which is when we can activate the positive neural networks. So a simple technique is be aware of where your mind takes you, that you don't want to go. You can't necessarily escape it, but look right at it, say good day, take a couple <laughs> of breaths and come to what you're doing. Yes. And Randolph, the amygdala response is, do I think of that as the sort of immediate fight or flight yes. Uh, approach? You know, yes, indeed. Save a tooth tiger on the plains. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Yes, we are hardwired, being part of the animal kingdom, that uh, fight and flight are our dominant uh, survival Um, mechanisms. We've got a little bit of freeze, maybe a little bit of collapse, but mainly fight and flight for humans. Mm. Um, And the associated emotions, um, flight is fear, that'll help us run fast, and fight is anger. So that'll help us, you know, deal Mm. with things aggressively. So these two emotions are the biggest motivators to take action. But often, uh, unless there is actual danger, these are not going to help us. Mm. In fact, often quite the opposite. Yes, I always I find if something's troubling me, uh, then the hardest thing often is to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and begin thinking about it. And then suddenly it's like my body has been flooded. I don't know whether it's adrenaline or, w- or what it is, but flooded with chemicals that have me wide awake at uh, <laughs> 3 o'clock in the morning. And then... In some sense, it doesn't matter what I think think of after that because the 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 sleep is gone. The wrong chemicals are are infused in my body, mm. and uh, and I'm wide awake at the wrong time. Yes, uh, we believe it's a little mix of chemicals such as adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine. Yes, and and we all know that feeling, don't we? At three in the morning, that kind of ice cold horrible feeling. Mm, mm. Um, And yes, that's a chemical release. We also now have reasonably good evidence that when we go into this state, now that's a version of fight or flight, of course, that's a physiological component. We also believe that when we go into a fight or flight response, at whatever level, um, blood flow to the frontal lobes is restricted. Now, the frontal lobes are human things. The frontal lobes is where we do our what we call executive functioning, but it means our, our, our higher-order thinking, things that are not fight or flight, emotions that are not fear or anger. Um, so things like our ability to plan, our creativity, um, feeling happy, our sense of self, um, and even processing and remembering information are frontal activities. And mm. so if we keep activating our danger processing, we're actually restricting blood flow to the actual part of the brain that helps us get out of these situations. 
Um, yes, again, we're not. Uh, I think we outgrew fight or flight almost immediately, humans, because we're social creatures, and we invented a a new form of danger that fight or flight is just not meant for, and that is stress. Stress is unrelenting danger. It may not be as intense, but it doesn't stop. And so at some level, we keep activating these processes, physical, emotional, and cognitive, um, all related to the fight or flight Mm. mechanism. Mm. And so a lot of my work, and again, physical pain is danger. So pain is danger. You know, we can injure ourselves. And if there is no danger, we might not even feel pain. We can have a minor injury, but if there's a high level of perceived in, uh, danger, we will feel a high level of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, we can. An example I like is I was watching one night a documentary and they were interviewing people who'd been mauled by white pointer sharks. Now, again, they were not making this point. I just had my psychologist glasses on. But all of the people interviewed fell into two groups. Group one, they're swimming along, they look down, they see a shark, it's got big teeth, it bites their leg off. All of those people described incredible pain, physical pain. The other group, the shark snuck up on them and bit their leg off. None of those people described pain. They said, I felt a bump or a thump. Now, obviously, when you see a shark swimming off with your leg, you know something dangerous has just happened. You're going to feel pain. But it's an example just of how powerful that interaction Mm. is between danger and pain. And so any activities that we can do to reduce the danger activation or the fight or flight mechanism can help us cope with many things. And that's what I alluded to when I said also that I tend to work behaviorally before I work cognitively, is actually I want good blood flow to the frontal lobes before we start doing thinky stuff. Oh, very interesting. And uh, presumably if you spy a shark and you think there's no way of getting into the uh, beach, the best thing at that stage to do is, look, is to look away. Uh, it'll um, minimize the pain when it, uh, when uh, it comes. I'd recommend full-blown fight or flight at that <laughs> stage. <laughs> So I want to move from pleasure to pain in a, in a moment, but did you want to say anything more about the M and the A of PERMA, the meaning sure. and accomplishment? Absolutely. So meaning is that uh, people who are flourishing tend to be engaging in activities that they find meaningful. Um, again, if we go to the, the acceptance commitment therapy, one of the main components there is values. And so values are an indicator as to what gives us personal meaning. Now, values are not goals, Values are deeper than that. Mm. Um, To be a good father or to be a good friend, there's no end point there. It's not a goal. It's a value. And so when we can be more aware of what our values are, we can target what we do to be more in line with them and hence experience a greater sense of meaning. Mm. Um, And again, any of those things that you want to get flow with, you know, you can whack in a bit of bonus meaning that that can add as well Um, and accomplishment also uh, the final element of PERMA Um, again when we're depressed uh, we're not feeling a sense of accomplishment we are generally feeling a pervasive sense of failure regardless of what we're actually doing Uh, so finding ways to enhance the sense of accomplishment um, can be really important 
um, we can be really hard on ourselves. And again, CBT has helped us understand the, the ways that we undermine our own confidence by mm. our negative self-talk. Um, and we can be accomplishing things but not feeling it or not believing it or discounting it. Um, perfectionism is one uh, such manifestation uh, where people are so focused on doing the perfect job that anything less than perfect is failure. I only got 98% in my exam. I failed 2%. Mm. Mm. You know, logically, we'd say, wait a minute, that's a great accomplishment. Um, someone told me recently, they said, look, I'm, I'm just not getting this university uh, unit. I'm only getting 80% in my quizzes. I said, that means you are getting it. <laughs> but again, it was that 20% was missing to them. Yes. Um, so the sense of accomplishment is, again, giving ourselves permission and allowing ourselves, and even if you like, training ourselves to be able to praise ourselves. Um, human condition, self-compassion is a challenge. Americans seem to do this more than, more than Australians, is my sort of casual empiricism. I mean, you know, spending time in the States, uh, when Americans say, give yourself a pat on the back, uh, many people in the room will take it literally, whereas I uh, don't recall ever being in an Australian room where someone said, give yourself a pat on the back, and everyone reached over their shoulders. Uh, <laughs> And perhaps that's a, that's a societal strength. I'm not sure. It could be. It could be. As long as it's genuine. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah. I mean, there's something to be said also for the self-hug. So yes. when we give ourselves a hug, we actually activate a bunch of neural processes um, similar to if we were being hugged by someone else. So there are compassionate things we can do for ourselves. And again, perfectionism is that, that tendency uh, not to do that or to pick faults in what we may have actually achieved. Um, culturally, yes, there, <laughs> there are likely differences. I'm not sure if the outcomes are supporting one approach or the other. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So what got you interested in, pa in, in pain, in, in physical pain? Uh, I was an early career psychologist and I practiced a particular form of meditation called Vipassana, uh, which uh, you sit 10-day courses in silence trying to hold your position. Um, it's very painful physically and the idea there is to attempt to transcend it or if we were to talk Buddhist philosophy, the uh, the first noble truth on the path to enlightenment is the acceptance of suffering. So they make sure you get a heaping helping. <laughs> and uh, so another psychologist working in pain uh, realized what I was doing and said, you may be able to adapt these understandings to pain. Uh, and that led me down that path. Um, and, I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I know that's a strange thing to say. Um, I also have uh, an injury, uh, so I have chronic pain. I mentioned I used to ride a mountain bike. I don't ride a mountain bike anymore. I can't run uh, because I have two uh, kind of pretty much collapsed discs in my neck. So I also experience ongoing pain. Um, but uh, I use my own techniques at the end of the day. I don't take medication. I don't have surgery um, I keep all my movement and I've adapted mm. my activities to be more enjoyable, even if there are things I couldn't, that I can't do that I used to. I, it's part of our work to find workarounds. What yes. else can we do? 
So what is your what, uh, main, the main set of strategies that you recommend to somebody with, uh, with, with chronic pain? Okay. First is to practice uh, what we call down-regulation strategies, things like breathing exercises and uh, progressive muscle relaxation. So ways to physiologically and emotionally and cognitively reduce the danger response. So if we can start training that danger response down, we're already working on pain. So the pain and danger link goes both ways. If we experience pain, we're triggering up a danger response. Mm -hmm. A danger response can also increase our pain, as we described before. So the first step is, is to start training your system. Often if people have been in fight or flight for a long period, what's called the parasympathetic response just isn't working, and that is the relaxation response. That's half of the the puzzle. And so often we've got to kind of manually train that back in and have techniques where we can actually come out of fight or flight, hopefully on cue with practice. So that's the first step with pain is to start working on reducing the pain processing or the danger processing. Um, and then we work towards uh, in the uh, with the techniques I use in normalizing uh, our activities, our lives, our movement um, in various ways. So again, pain has a huge overlap with depression because when people experience chronic pain, they tend to stop doing things that gave them a sense of value, mm. um, of pleasure and accomplishment. And so depression is more likely if we're not activating those centers um, and so we need to find ways to get back to doing things. Um, but initially, we've got to be okay with our own bodies. Now, um, we had a little laugh when I, I mentioned a, a diffusion technique. But under that was a very different way of looking at our thinking, which is appropriate for pain also. And that is to look right at it um, and then work with it. So we, if we're trying to escape from our pain, then we are using flight to manage pain. Pain is fight or flight. So if we try to fight our pain or escape from our pain, well, fight or flight is what pain has for breakfast. <laughs> so we're feeding it. So we must normalize our activities as best we can. Things like walking, um, catching up with your friends, finding ways to do the things you want to do. Um, as I said, I don't mountain bike now, but I can still ride a bicycle around on the smooth roads, so I do that instead. Mm. Um, I walk to work every day and back um, because that's a form of exercise. It has similarities to riding a bicycle. Um, I used to play the guitar, not so easy now, but my partner, bless her, bought me an electric guitar you just got to touch the strings and you sound like a rock star. <laughs> no skill necessary. <laughs> but it's, it's sort of easier to say than to do to, to regulate your breathing when you're in serious pain. I mean, I, I don't have the sort of chronic back pain that you, you experienced, but when I've done my back in, I know that my breathing shortens and uh, I get frustrated and, and I don't particularly... 
don't particularly want to, to breathe properly. Uh, is something my system is telling me to, to breathe fast. Is there something you say as you breathe out in order to regulate that? Uh, there can be. Um, one of the main approaches I use is that we want to do much of the pain management training and work when we're not in a flare-up of pain. Mm. So with most chronic pain conditions, most people have a flare-up cycle, and that is their pain will be at usually a manageable level, but then it will spike up for a while, and, and that's a flare-up. So a lot of the work is when you're not in flare-up, because it is really hard. Mm. As, as you said, it's very hard to remember to breathe, to remember to smile, all those things we don't want to do when we're in fight or flight. So a lot of this work is when we're not in flare-up is to walk normally, move our arms and legs normally and send those messages through to the brain that things are okay because I'm behaving normally mm. and to get those um, important aspects of our lives back on track, understanding that if we're having a pain flare-up, that will be more difficult. There's no way around it. Um, and how do you get the pacing of that right? How do you make sure that you're not pushing yourself too far uh, in, uh, when, when you're exacerbating the pain rather than relieving it? Mm. That is an important element to uh, pain management is working out your limits. Uh, we can actually use formulas for it. Um, but one of the main aspects for most people is that element of perfectionism that we all have uh, and that is to override that and break jobs into smaller jobs and stop and give yourself a pat on the back <laughs> at each stage. So say if you want to clean the kitchen, clean the surfaces first. Stop, give yourself a pat on the back. Come back, do the dishes another time. Mm. The tendency to want to do everything at once or not stop until it's complete um, is our undoing with chronic pain. Or another way to look at it is what has always worked when we get chronic pain is what actually works against us. So what has always worked is we push through. If you want to run a marathon, then you have to run further than you thought you could. And then you have to do that again and you have to do that again. Uh, if we decide to go and get a degree at university, we have to learn more than we thought we could learn. So we keep pushing through. When we have a chronic pain condition, that leads us into what's called a boom-bust cycle, in which case our function starts going down mm. because we, start, we keep smashing ourselves. So it's a real challenge to reverse what has always worked and still have that able to help us. Because the reality is if you can stay under your flashpoint, i.e. that point where you've done too much, you can gradually increase your capacity by not, you know, activating all those fight or flight uh, mechanisms and, and behaviours associated with them. And is this mostly physical, Randolph, or mental? I mean, are we building neuroplasticity or are we actually getting the muscles around the area that is experiencing pain somehow to be a bit more relaxed? Uh, we are doing both. Okay. Yes, indeed, we are doing both. Uh, neuroplasticity is, of course, our great hope these days. Um, so some conditions we thought were not treatable appear to be more treatable. Mm. We still don't fully understand it. Um, 
but that is indeed our hope. And that's, again, the, the, the three-step technique I use, I consider, is neuroplasticity. And that is catch yourself in a, in a pattern of activation, breathe to allow yourself out of it by coming out of danger processing, and then deliberately hold your attention on what you're doing or your chosen target, and thereby create and then power up a new neural pattern. Right. And that's neuroplasticity. And again, that's where our pleasure is, our accomplishment is, is activating those, those more positive neural patterns. Do you, uh, do you have recommendations for reading? I mean, the self-help literature is voluminous and not always, how do I put this tactfully, deeply grounded in empirical evidence. <laughs> uh, where, where do people go to get good evidence-based uh, strategies for the sorts of things we've been speaking about? Oh, they go to see a psychologist, of course. No, I get your point. Um, uh, I like the positive psychology literature. Okay. Um, the PERMA model. Um, so Martin Seligman's writings can be helpful. Um, there are plenty of self-help guides, uh, especially with ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy and even CBT. And there are also uh, online resources at that level. Um, there is a lot, as you say, um, I'm not sure off the top of my head I can point you to particular works at this stage no, as they right. are that's, wide that's and useful. varied. Um, yeah, um, ask your friends what has helped them perhaps. Mm. Mm. Um, and if you know someone who seems to be really flourishing, maybe ask them what they're doing. <laughs> yes, you're not working on a... Zen and the art of bicycle maintenance, or anything, <laughs> anything of that kind. Ah, uh, not at this point, no. What do you What do you get out of teaching? Uh, you do you integrate, as we were talking about at the outset, uh, the teaching and the and the practice quite effectively from uh, from from my eyes. Um, what does that bring to you? Um, one, okay. If we just work down our perma model. <laughs> uh, I actually enjoy it. I derive a great deal of pleasure from sharing knowledge, um, from seeing people's faces as they, they get things. Um, I find teaching, um, I tend to go into a flow state, and that is highly enjoyable for me, but also means it, uh, it tends to synchronise well and, and deliver a, a, an enjoyable experience for the listener which is nice as well. Um, it's connecting with people. I like to have an input uh, into up-and-coming psychologists. Mm, mm. Um, a psychology degree can be a very stressful time. You know, when you're in your undergrad, if you want to get to an honours year, you know, you needed to get a distinction average. No pressure. Um, if you want to get to postgraduate, then you have to do very well in your honours degree, first or second class honours, generally. Um, there are other paths in. Um, so, yeah, my enjoyment comes from um, assisting psychology students uh, in their journey. Um, yeah, and seeing their enjoyment, again, when they, when they get it. Do you get a sense that some of what you're teaching them is also helping provide them some coping strategies? I've caught up 
just the other day with a couple of uh, students from a new medical school that were talking about the high prevalence of self-harm among medical students, um, particularly while they're studying. They were saying it drops off quite markedly when those, those people are, are actually in clinical practice. Um, are you, do you have in the back of your mind in your teaching that this will not just be useful for your students as practitioners but also uh, as, as individuals? Absolutely. Um, I've actually, um, for about the last five years, I've presented a lecture to the third-year undergrad students. That means this is their final semester in undergrad degree. I give them a lecture on positive psychology. And my reasoning was, when I presented it to the school, was everyone's been very stressed, very anxious, very perfectionist, and they've been learning lots of pathology. Why not give them something really fun and positive mm. to finish up on. Now, uh, the first few times I delivered this lecture, I got applause. Now, to get applause from jaded third-year psychology <laughs> students in a lecture, I think is a great achievement. And I'm, I'm willing yes. to pat myself on the back for that one. You could give yourself um, a hug for that yeah, one. Good indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's an actual example that I, yes. I very deliberately argued the case for providing a lecture that would just be positive and with lots of handy hints on how to live a good life. Um, and again, using the psychological theories and constructs that they had mm. actually been studying but hadn't realised, you know, that they could be used for fun. Yes, that deficit model, I guess, is how we, we do a lot of the teaching rather than a strengths model. Yes. Um, so to conclude, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> uh, I tend to think finish school. <laughs> it was very difficult to come back in my 30s and do that. Um, I do believe I followed my heart as a teenager, though, and so I'm, I'm still pretty happy with that. Um, mainly trust yourself, I think, is what I would say. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I went through a phase, I think as many people do, uh, feeling like they're a victim and feeling like the forces are marshalled against me. Um, I don't believe that at all anymore. Um, it doesn't mean that difficulties won't occur because they always do, um, but I don't believe there is... Uh, Anything against me. Randolph, when are you most happy? I thought about this because I did have that question in advance, and it may sound cheesy, but when I am in session with the client is when I'm most happy these days. I truly love my work, um, and uh, again, when the two of us are kind of in something like a flow state, um, mm. it is intensely meaningful and enjoyable. So I would have to say I feel very lucky that as a second career, um, I'm one of those people who is what their career as is. So what that means is I am a psychologist. When I catch up with my psychologist buddies, we talk about psychology, um, which I didn't even dream was possible to want to talk about your work in your leisure time. But yes. it's one of those wonderful uh, occupations, if you like, that we have that opportunity. So, yeah, most happy in the middle of session. <laughs> what 
What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, at the moment, I think it's my walking to and from work. So 30 to 40 minutes each way, each day. Uh, gives me my exercise, allows me to practice my own breathing techniques, um, allows me to practice my present moment awareness, um, and allows me to prepare for the day and let go of the day at the end of the day. So um, just walking to work, nice and simple, but I would say that is my most important thing at this moment. And given that Canberra is now down to sub-zero nights, it uh, must be a crisp start to the day, I imagine. It is. After many years, after over a decade, I finally relented and bought a puffy jacket. <laughs> uh, yes, I remember one of my uh, insights in first moving to the US, to Boston, was that it was possible to buy puffy jackets which had uh, duck feathers inside them. Mm. <laughs> uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Um... Look, I think probably fairly common guilty pleasures, um, sweet things, <laughs> eating things I know are not going. I'm going to have to walk to work to get that out of my system, um, and the odd really terrible TV show as well. I'm not going to disclose the current favourite. That would be too embarrassing. <laughs> All right. I, I won't even try. Um, and finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, the birth of my daughter and my life um, and relationship with her has been instrumental. Um, as I said, it, it allowed me to uh, find the career that I believe is, is my calling, if you would. Um, and now with her starting her psychology degree, uh, it's a, a great deal of pride and, mm. um, and just enjoyment in being around her. So um, I think... Yes, my daughter would be that one. Seems a real hinge point in your life, the way you tell the story, and moving from this sort of peripatetic uh, lifestyle to to a much more grounded uh, life in, uh, yes. in psychology. Yes, and and you know, having my daughter tell me that that's inspired her to follow yes. that path also. Um, yes, very much so. It's pretty special. Mm. Well, Randolph Sparks, thanks very much for taking the opportunity to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on your favourite social media app. And if you are interested in politics or policy, you might want to check out my Andrew Lee Speeches and Conversations podcast, including a recent speech on reducing inequality. Next week, I'll be back with a new guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.